One of the things that is amazing in churches is how often churches split. How often there are problems and arguments and destructive things that happen within the relationships within a church. I came across some statistics this week as I was preparing for the message. From the Peacemaker organization, it is estimated that there are 19,000 major scarring church conflicts in the U.S. every year. That works out to 50 per day. I have a feeling a lot more happen on Sundays than happen during the rest of the week. According to the Church Conflict Forum, only 2% of the church conflicts are over doctrinal issues. 98% are over other issues. Now, some of those may be important. They may be central. But only 2% deal with doctrinal issues. I was reading some of the stories this week. One church split over a piano bench that had been in the church for decades. And one group wanted the church, the piano bench out of the sanctuary. That always makes it a big thing. One group wanted it in. And so the battle began. Eventually, the church came to a conclusion, a solution. Two services. During the one service, the church, the piano bench is in the service. During the second, they carry it out. And the second service has the piano bench outside the service. If you've been involved in church work, you know that doesn't really surprise you. And that's the sad thing. But the one that got me, I... I, If I didn't know the source of this, I I would consider it, it had to be a made-up story, but it's not. Probably the worst of all involves, it happened to be a Presbyterian church, it could be any, in a little town of Centerville, Georgia. And I've got to read this because the details are so unbelievable uh, that that I want to read kind of through the article a little bit. The the population of Centerville is 5,000 people. And in this little Presbyterian church, they had a conflict back in 1911 over whether or not the offering should be taken before the sermon or after the sermon. As a result of that, the church split. And the split-off church became known as the Centerville Reformed Presbyterian Church. Four years later, that'd be making 1915, the church split again over whether or not to have flowers in the sanctuary or not. The split-off church was known as the Trinity Reformed Presbyterian Church of Centerville. It gets worse. There were several more splits between 1915 and 1929 over various issues. And in 1931, the latest edition was named, the, the one after that, was known as the Third Westminster Trinity Covenant Presbyterian Reformed Church of Centerville. <laughs> Since 1975, a few more church splits have taken place. And overall, from that one church, there's been 48 splits. Apparently, that's a record. 
The last one was over it, whether or not it was a violation of the Sabbath day to check your email on Sunday or not. The church split over the issue. Some folks left the Second Street First Ninth Westminster Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church and renamed and reformed their church, the Presbyterian Totally Reformed Covenantal Westminsterian Sabbatarian Regulative Credo Communism Amillennial Presuppositional Church of Centerville. Really? Listen, this is too silly to make up. A teacher, the elder at the church, was quoted, a, a teaching elder of the church of the PTRCWSRCCAPCC church, for short, was quoted as thinking, we're finally got it right now. We have a church with 100% doctrinal purity. We're up to six people on Sundays. I know that numbers aren't important, but we're hoping to grow a little bit. If they get to nine, they'll probably split again. (laughs) You know, beloved, that would be funny. And it is funny. We need to laugh. If it wasn't so deadly serious. So many times, the church is more for its division than its unity. Known more for its ability to divide than its ability to declare in unity the message and the purpose for which God has called us. And this is deadly. May I use a theological term? This is stupid. And yet, this is what happens so often in churches. And the battle lines are so foolish. There, whether or not, I remember the first one that I read years ago about a church that split over whether you use cocoa mats or plastic mats in the foyer. And I'm sure the argument came down to whether or not it was theologically correct to walk over artificial things to enter into the sanctuary. I never call this place a sanctuary because this is the sanctuary. This is where God dwells. This is where the sanctuaries meet to worship God because we make so many silly things happen through those kinds of issues. I have mentioned the first church that I pastored, a small little church in Indiana, split over whether or not to put the bathroom in the back of the church or in the front of the church. And the theological debate, and I think they even had verses to support it, was they were not going to walk by the bathroom to enter into the sanctuary. Those things are foolish. But so often it's what we divide over. It's what we argue about. Paul is dealing with that kind of situation here in Philippians chapter 4. In fact, I think that as he's writing this particular epistle, 
a situation that was causing division within this wonderful church was on his mind as he was working his way through. As Paul has been developing his argumentation in the book of Philippians, as he's been dealing with the didactic sections, that which is teaching, and moves on to the praxis, that which is practical, that which is practice. I think a lot of that didactic teaching, that that didactic section, dealt with the foundation of what we ought to be as a body. He talked about the fact that in, in, in Philippians chapter 2, that if there is any unity that takes place because of the presence of God's Spirit in our lives, because of the relationship that we have, because of the love we have one another, then therefore we ought to be, and he goes on to talk about being one in thinking, of being one in soul, of being together in our attitudes towards one another. He goes on to say, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let us consider others as more important. He goes on to say in chapter 2 and verse 5, have this attitude, this mindset, this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Over and over again, he is focusing on the fact that there is to be unity within the body of Christ. That doesn't mean there aren't differences. I don't have a problem with with churches being different. I don't have a problem with denominations in the sense of, you know, there's some folks that, that have a different worship style, that have a different focus. Okay, but it's when we become divisive over those issues that we're better than you are, that we're more spiritual than you are, that we're finally doctrinally pure, all six of us. Which, by the way, they're not. That is such a difficulty within churches. And one of the biggest struggles, and again, it's one of my church proverbs. The problem with conflicts within the church is all of us are convinced God's on our side. And it ought to be so different. When we come to Philippians chapter 4 and we're dealing with this particular issue, as he does that transition there in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brethren, you whom I love, who I long for, my joy, my crown, those who are my dear friends, stand firm, stand strong. It's a transition from the doctrinal, from the teaching to the practice. And the very first issue he deals with, is Judea and Synthica and the battle that has begun to take place within that church. Paul wants us to understand that in every church, resolving conflict is essential to maintain unity. Now, I use the word every there in sort of a double entente, a double meaning meaning that in every church it ought to be done, but also meaning in every church it needs to be done. Because every church has its struggles. As Paul is developing this, one of the things he wants us to understand is disagreements are going to happen. We're not going to see things the same way. 
We're not going to see things in exactly the, the, the same tone. We're different people with different personalities and, and different backgrounds and, and different uh, views on all parts of our lives. We, we have different personalities. Some of you are organized and together and purposeful. And, you know, if I came into your office and looked at your desk, it would be clear and clean. And, and then there are people like me who is not. Am I right and you're wrong? Are you wrong and I'm right? Did I just do it the same way? Disagreements are going to happen. We're humans. And what I find so interesting is when you come to this particular position, when you come to this particular passage, there as you come to chapter 4 and verse 1, and Paul says, I plead with Yorea and I plead with Syntyche to agree with one another. Disagreements will happen in the healthiest of churches, just like they happen in the healthiest of marriages. I remember when I used to do premarital counseling, a lot of it. I do some now, but I'd get a couple in there and I'd say, tell me about your last fight. And I'd get this, oh, we never fight. And I would think to myself, give me 10 minutes. It's not healthy. It means one of the couple, one of the people is probably superfluous. Their, their ideas, their thoughts, their emotions, their, their who they are is, is unimportant. This is a healthy church. This is the church of Philippi. This is the church that was founded by Paul. And Paul had great ministry in this church and probably let Luke go in this church and allowed him to stay and minister. This was a church that had Silas and would have Timothy and would have, you know, somebody like Epaphrodites. And this was a healthy church. A church with men like Clement, who we know nothing about other than the fact that he's a highly respected individual within the church. It's a healthy church. But there's some disagreement going on. The other thing we come to understand is this will happen among among the respected of the faith. Yudia and Syntyche are not two old biddies who are battling over some foolishness. These are, these are women of some real authority within the church. We're not sure exactly what, but, but it's clear that they have some real impact. In fact, as Paul is describing them, he uses these amazing terms in verse 3 when he says, Yes, I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended by my side. The word is a word out of the gladiatorial games. It's, you remember, remember the, the scene from the gladiator when, when he and the really tall black guy get together and they begin to battle together and they stand side by side? That's the word. They fought together against the enemy. They fought together in the midst of the battle. These were women that were major parts of, of the process of the gospel being spread. Paul says, they're my co-workers. They're my, my co-battlers. They have a reputation of being part of the, you know, the varsity team, if you like. There's going to be differences. 
And as you begin to look at it, you find something very, very interesting. It's that they usually happen over non-essential issues. Now, now let's be clear. There are issues that require us to take a stand. There are things that we need to say, you know what? I cannot bend on this. But they are few. Few. Not enough to have 48 splits in 100 years. Now, some of those issues, sometimes it's moral issues. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. By the way, that's a great translation. It means kind of those who are just immoral in all of the different ways that it means. Actually, it might even be just immoral. Immoral in all of the ways that we understand a moral decision. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy and swindlers or idolatry. In that case, you would, it would have to leave the world. We're not to judge them. But you know what's so sad is we so much judge them and fail to look at our own hearts. We are to call to responsibility, not the world. The world does what the world does. It sins. <gasps> it's us. So when these things are in our body and we do nothing about them. But now I'm writing that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, a swindler, with such people don't even eat. This is talking about an unrepentant person. This isn't talking about a person that struggles in those areas. There are people that struggle with addictions. There are people that struggle with those kinds of things in their life. And there's a repentance over a desire to move on, having that struggle in their lives. I'm not talking about that kind of person. I'm talking about the kind of person that says, I'm doing it and I don't care. I don't care what God's word says. I don't care what God's people say. This is just the way it is. Deal with it. Paul says that's not appropriate. We need to take a stand on moral issues. We need to take a stand on theological issues. There are some. I call them the the deadly doctrines. The ones that I hopefully would die for. But there aren't many. The deity of Christ. Trinity, the triune nature of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, the bodily return of Christ, the, the authority of God's word. Those are some of the deadly doctrines. But that's usually not what the fight is about. I read about one church that had a fight over how to spell the Hebrew letter Vav. Remember when Jesus said not a jot or tittle? He's talking about that little little mark that you use in Hebrew. It, the church split over to spell it W-A-W or V-A-V. Because that was a theologically important issue. There are some. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to to the teaching, that which has been passed down is the idea there that you have learned. 
Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own. Remember the word last year, cola? I mean, last week, cola, empty space, same word. Their appetites, their selfishness, their self-centeredness, the emptiness that drives them to to pride and to arrogance and to self-centeredness and all the rest. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. You want to see this? Turn on much of Christian broadcasting. There are things to divide from. In fact, we're divided from divisive people. Paul says in Titus chapter 3, verses 9 and 11, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. I find it so interesting that churches, we put up with divisiveness and we say nothing. Divisive people are to be moved away from, not honored. Paul says there are reasons to take a stand. But the fact is, most disagreements involve non-essentials and are usually focused on preference. How many churches have divided over worship wars? How many churches have divided over things like the color of a carpet, the color of a wall, putting a bathroom in the back of the church or the front of the church? How many churches have divided over personal struggles? Somebody is slighted, and there's not an ability to deal with those kinds of things. How many churches have divided over silly theological things, like which Bible we use, which translation. Is it King James? Is it New King James? Is it, you know, English Standard Version? Is it the, you know, the NIV? Is it the New American Standard? What is it? These aren't major issues. You know, we fight over whether or not it's okay for the youth pastor to wear sandals when he preaches. I wish I was the youth pastor. I'd wear sandals when I'm preaching. Not here. I mean, we don't fight over that. We have a youth pastor. That wears sandals. Colleen is in the back. I can't believe he's doing that. And jeans. Those are not issues to fight over. Beloved, the world is going to hell. And we're fighting over the color of a carpet. And be careful. Don't look out there. Look in here. You see, the problem is not the disagreements. Of course we disagree at things. Of course we think there are different ways to do stuff. The problem isn't disagreements. It's disagreeable people. It's how we respond. And I love what Paul does here. Because what Paul does is he says the first concern to address in nearly all disagreements is you. Right? No. It's me. 
What have I done? How have I failed? How am I dealing with this? What is my attitude? Is this a speck in their eye and a beam in mine? What part is selfishness and empty conceit or the idea of self-promotion involved in this? I want to look at me first. You see that in the text. There's a very interesting way in which Paul deals with this. Notice what it says in chapter 2. I mean, sorry, chapter 4, verse 2. He says, I plead with you, Iodia, and I plead with you, Cynthia. The word there, plead, is a strong word. It's, it's a word of not quite beg, that's too soft, but it's more like, I implore, I, I plead with you. But notice how he repeats exactly the same phrase. That's very rare. He says, you and you need to respond the same way. You need to be thinking with one mind. You need to have the right attitude. And as you look at that, I thought, you know what? There really is in this a a real problem. And Paul is saying, you know what? The real problem is not the other person. Yodia, the real problem is not Syntyche. And Syntyche, the real problem is not Yodia. You both have something to look at. You know, I often notice when I'm arguing with Cindy, my first assumption is it's her problem. I'm right. And that's the struggle we all have. Paul says the problem isn't the other person. Now, again, I want to be careful. These are not global things. Yes, there are times when you're dealing with an evil person or you're dealing with a, with a you know, troubling person. That does exist, but usually that's not the case. The problem isn't the specifics of the disagreement. We have no idea what it was. We don't know what they were arguing about. You know why? Because Paul said that's not the issue. The issue is your attitude. This was not a doctrinal issue. Paul would have dealt with that. And he dealt with them harshly. Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched thee? One of my favorite verses in all of Galatians. Let those who would call for circumcision, let them mutilate themselves fully. This isn't a theological issue. I believe it's probably an issue dealing with two people who have different ways of wanting to be involved in getting things accomplished. Good people. The problem is one of attitude or mindset. You see, that's where Paul goes when he says, I plead with you, Yodia, I plead with you, Syntyche, to agree with each other in the Lord. Literally, he says, have one mind, one attitude. And it takes us 
all the way back, flip back just a few pages when you were there and you were, when we were dealing with Philippians chapter 2, when he says, since there is encouragement from being united in Christ, since there is comfort of his love, since there is fellowship with his spirit, if there's any, and since there's tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being one in mind. Exactly the same words, exactly the same re- phrase, exactly the same order. Paul says, let's go back. The problem is we're not acting like Christ. He goes on to have, go on and say that having the same love, being one in spirit, literally it's one in soul, and then he goes on to say again, one in mind. In verse 5, have this mind. That's that word that keeps coming up here in Philippians. It's our attitude, our mindset. The problem is not the issue. The problem is not the other person. I need to look first at my mindset, my assumptions, my thinking, my selfishness, my other-centeredness, my self-promotion, the struggles that are within me first. Then we can deal with the issue that I might see in you. Jesus said it this way. Oh, no. First of all, here's what the struggle is. Our usual response in a conflict is to look at my hurt and your wrong. But God's word has a different way. Within the body of Christ, we begin looking first at my wrong and your hurt. Imagine what the argument would be like if that really happened. I really feel so bad about hurting you. Yeah, I really feel so bad about hurting you. Yeah, but I'm more hurt than you are. You know, no, I don't mean. What if we had that kind of attitude? St. Francis, in the prayer of St. Francis, I use when I do weddings all the time, talks about God's a request to God to say, Lord, help me not so much seek to be understood as to understand first. It's a struggle. And does it mean you're not hurt? Does it mean we're not hurt as people? No, sometimes we are to look inside first. This is where Jesus says it. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? The beam, the log? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brothers. It doesn't mean there aren't issues. It doesn't mean there aren't things that have to be dealt with. It doesn't mean that people don't fail me and hurt me. There are specks. But I need to first look at me. I remember when I first went to faith down in Louisiana, there was an issue that came up, which often happens when a pastor first comes, there'll be those that kind of, there's a debate that goes on. And 
often people think they should have been pastor and they're not, and that kind of thing can take place. And I remember an issue came up, and we've had a family that finally, finally, they just left the church. And I remember the first elders meeting, we got together that night when something had happened, and I watched three men in tears say, you know, I want to understand how we failed in this situation. I remember being blown away and thinking, you know, their first view is to look at their log before dealing with the speck. Now, how do I know if there's a speck? How do I know if it's really a speck and not a major thing? So I came up with a speck check. And I don't think this is complete. It was just some things that I thought. How do I know if I'm dealing with a speck in somebody else's eye and failing to deal with the log in mine? First of all, I need to ask this question. Is this a moral issue? Could this really damage the reputation and standing of the church? Or is this more a personal preference issue? Now, be careful of the moral equivalency stuff. Yeah, but if you take that to its logical conclusion, you were trying to murder me. <laughs> How did you know my heart? No, no that's, that's silly. Another one. This is a critical theological issue. Is this issue really that important? Is it at the center of what it means to be a follower of Christ? Whether or not the sixth dispensation started in Acts chapter 11 or 12, or it start I mean, I, I've watched churches split over that kind of silliness. Is this really a theologically essential issue? Here's another um, spec check. Am I trying to out- manipulate the outcome? Am I more about getting the result I'm looking for than listening well to the person and understanding them? Or maybe this. Has my pride been tweaked? They're getting more attention than I did. They're getting more acclaim than I am. They're having a greater impact on things than I am. I've been around this church for, and they're not listening to me. I'm not quoting from here. I'm quoting from things I've heard in 40 years of ministry. How about this one? Am I gathering paper or allies? Gathering paper means that everything the person does, I automatically assume the most negative possible interpretation. Building paper is a business term. It means I'm building reasons to eventually fire them. Or am I gathering allies? Did you hear about so-and-so? Did you hear? You know, I think they're wrong. Do you agree with me? And then you go to the leadership and say, do you know everybody in the church is talking about? What it means is two other people weren't like this because they were afraid to confront me. 
Another part of the spec checklist is what is my motivation? And the problem is often I don't know my motivation. Do you know one of the best ways to know what your motivation is? Look at your emotions. Your emotions will tell you what your real motivation is. If you are really motivated for what is best, yes, there can be some negative emotions that come, things like sadness and, and, and grief and, and, and loss and some of those kinds of things. But the problem is our hearts are so deceitful. Jeremiah says they're deceitfully wicked above all things. Take a look at your emotions in the midst of the conflict. Are you angry at those who disagree with you? Are you raging at them? Are you, are you just boiling inside every time you hear them talk? Beloved, that's not their problem. How about this one? Are you frustrated with those who disagree? You just can feel it rising up. Why bother? Those are signs that the issue is my heart. Not the issue. Am I acting out of hurt or revenge for a previous slight? One of the things that will destroy a marriage is this. You hurt me, now I'm going to hurt you. One of the things that will destroy any relationship is you hurt me, now I will hurt you. One of the things that will destroy a church, you hurt me, now I hurt you. That is totally in opposition to Christ who said you hurt me, I still choose to forgive you and love you. Have this attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then this one. Have you allowed someone to examine your reasoning and motivation? I had a dear elder at a previous church, and I was involved with a disagreement with somebody. And this guy was wonderful. And I remember him saying to me, Keith, I thought about this. I thought about this. And it changed my evaluation of what was going on. Now, I'm not talking about building allies. Can you believe so-and-so? I'm talking about, please help me see where I am in the midst of the struggle. I, can never, I will never forget being with Larry Crabb. I used to work with him, and we were involved in doing some marital counseling stuff with, with another couple, and he was observing me as I was doing the, the counseling. Talk about scary. And I remember moving in a different direction, and afterwards Crabb came up to me and he said, you know, Keith, you bought into the line. Their whole view was the problem is them, and you moved in that direction. Your job was not to show them how to deal with them and their problem. Your job was to show them themselves and how to deal with their own problem. If you fail to love, if you fail to continue to love 
and to forgive. I don't mean restore. Restore is given in the face of repentance. But I mean forgive in the sense of remaining committed to what is best for that person. The problem is not them. The problem is here. When we go through that checklist, we can begin to deal with me, and then I'm ready to talk to you. You see, to avoid divisiveness and disagreement, we must reflect the attitude of Jesus. Father, forgive them. Now, did that mean restore the intimacy we had before? No. It meant, Father, don't take revenge on them. I won't. It meant, Father, continue to seek what is best for them. I will. To avoid divisiveness and disagreement, we must reflect Christ. And when we do that, something happens. There's resolution. And resolution is a community concern. Paul says, you know what? These two women are going at each other. We don't know all that was going on. But finally he comes and he says, yes. And I ask you, loyal yoke fellow. We have no idea who that was. My favorite theory is it was Paul's wife. I don't think so. Might have been Timothy. Might have been Epaphrodites. Might have been Luke. Might have been, who knows? It might be that the name is yoke fellow. Do you know what Paul says? Paul says, this is so important that it requires somebody with respect to deal with it. Don't let it go unresolved. Beloved, if you have a struggle here with somebody here, deal with it. And if you can't, Find somebody you respect. Find somebody with maturity. Find someone like Paul had said earlier, those that reflect Paul's reflection of Christ. Paul is laying the foundation to deal with this problem all the way through the book of Philippians. Don't let it go unresolved. And how do I know that? Well, Paul develops that. I'm going to look at these real quickly. First of all, he does it through the, through the, I'm sorry, through the intensity of the appeal. Again, he goes, yes. And I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, he adds words over and over again. The idea of yes is unique. And there's a conjunction in there also. And the, he's saying, do this. It's important. Get involved. Don't let it go on. It will be destructive. He does it through a specific appeal. When he goes on there and he says to, to, um, to yoke, loyal yoke, yoke fellow, when he says to them, help these women, he literally says, grab on together. Take hold of this situation together. Eunuchy and Syntyche and, and yoke, loyal yoke fellow. Get together. Work this out. Grab on to it. Don't let it keep going. Because we know what it's going to do. 
look at Corinth. And then the other thing that's so interesting is it's a community thing. We should be concerned when this is going on. And Paul does that through, he does something very interesting. I tell you how Paul makes up words all the time. I love that. I want to make up words. I want to. But he uses three words here that are sort of compound words that are together with a preposition with. And it is a community declaration. He talks about help with or help together. Then later he goes on to talk about these women as struggling together. And then he goes on to talk about working together. When we have struggles within the body, it's not a ho-hum kind of thing. We need to take them seriously. Deal with them. Why? Because unity is our goal. Since we're all part of the same heavenly commonwealth. Remember that word we looked at a few weeks ago where it talks about the fact that we are citizens of heaven and we said that the idea is that it was a commonwealth, that it, it's, a, it's a, a governing authority of which we are under. Well, in, in, in Rome, the way you declared yourself as being part of that governing authority is you were on the rolls. You were listed. You know what Paul says? He says, deal with this. Why? Because our names are together on the rolls of life. We're all part of the same community. We all have the same governing authority. We're to reflect him in everything that we do. Are there going to be disagreements in our church? in our families, among our friends, in our small groups? Yes. Paul says, deal with them. Start here. Deal with any logs. Then deal with the speck. In order that we might demonstrate Christ in all that we do. It's a call to unity by dealing with the inevitable disagreements to show the world that even in the midst of our fallenness and our struggles, there's a people that can truly love one another and demonstrate it in all that they do. To be good citizens of the heavenly commonwealth which we all belong. Father, thank you for this passage because we all struggle with it. Every single one of us has failed. Every single one of us has done things that hurts others. Every single one of us has been involved in situations where we disagree. We pray that we would not be disagreeable in those situations, but reflect you. Father, each Sunday morning, we we invite those who are uncertain of their faith, who are not sure of of where they are in their relationship with you, to, to be certain. Father, that's where the relationship begins. It begins with our relationship with you. So we invite anyone who has more questions or would like to know more to come and speak to me or someone else about a relationship with you. Father, we also understand that as a body, we are committed to our relationship to you and to one another. 
we ask that you would help us to live that out in all that we do. To your glory, to your honor. Amen.